listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. We have two upcoming events in New York City that I'd like to tell you about. The first will be next week on Tuesday evening, the 12th of September. This program is the third event in the Esther Lardent Leadership in Pro Bono series. The series is comprised of educational and networking events designed to promote innovative and creative dialogue about access to justice. The topic for the 12th is Pro Bono to Protect the First Amendment. We have an accomplished panel of experts lined up, and we hope you can join us. And coming next is the PBI Annual Dinner, which will be on Thursday night, September 28th, at the amazing Gotham Hall. More information about both events can be found on the web at probonoinst.org. Or if you prefer the phone, give Kelly Simon a call at 202-729-6691. Act soon, as space is now extremely limited for both nights. Special thank you to all of our generous sponsors. We're grateful for your support. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is Greg McConnell of Winston & Strawn. Greg is based in Chicago, and we had such a deep and wide-ranging conversation that we've broken it up into two episodes. This week, in part one, we discuss his career, the firm's pro bono program, the evolution of law firm pro bono leadership, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Greg McConnell, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's jump right in. Tell us about your background. Well, by background, I assume you mean some of my childhood upraising sort of background, correct? Absolutely. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Sure. What was your life like? Sure. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think what the Saturday Night Live skit was. It keeps coming back into my head. I think it was some, somebody portraying Richard Nixon. So <laughs> maybe that's not the best starting point for this discussion. But um, I grew up not in a humble log cabin, but in a small town in Illinois. Um, at the time, I lived there about... 8,000 residents um, outside of Chicago about an hour, which is important only for two things. One is that it was still within the media orbit of Chicago, particularly through the Chicago Tribune and WGN. And so there's very much a Chicago-infused feel, and everybody feels uh, a part of the, the orbit of the city. Um, and it's also, you know, sort of between Chicago and Iowa. So it is in the middle of the Heartland Prairie, um, cornfields, soybean fields all around. I worked in um, in the summers. I worked out in the cornfields as part of, for a for a local seed company called the Calbag Research. Uh, as did all the kids. Uh, my age at that time, including, here's my first name drop in this interview arena, including Cindy Crawford, who uh, used to work out in those very same cornfields. So um, I grew up, you know, in a very sort of mom and pop, apple pie kind of uh, all-American background. Wow. Well, no doubt we will be using Cindy to promote this episode. So thank you Cindy, for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Let's not. Let's not. Let's not impose on Cindy and ask if she remembers me. Okay? Oh no. You have to. You have to spare me that embarrassment. A very, very light touch, but I am completely confident that she does. So <laughs> at 
some point you graduate high school and you go off to school. Where do you go? I went to the University of Illinois, um, which seems one of those um, sort of obvious things for a kid from a small town. But but um, I was the only kid from my graduating class that went there and was only I was the first one to go there in five years. So for me, going from a school with a graduating class of 160 kids to a Big Ten university with 40, 50,000 students was a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's a lot of culture shock, I would imagine. And at some point, you decided to become a lawyer. How did that happen? You know, it's one of those things that everybody, I, I think many people that are lawyers feel like they kind of knew early on that they wanted to be a lawyer in the sense of they wanted to be proffering arguments on behalf of an individual that they wanted to be maybe somebody in a courtroom who was helping advance the cause of clients in whatever sense. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're, um, you know, in a, in a access to justice kind of a position, but that you're sort of a, you know, a courtroom lawyer and all the things that go with it. Uh, in, in my family, um, I have a cousin who was a partner at um, Hogan and Hartson, obviously then Hogan Lovells, um, who was significantly older than I was, but he was always sort of this icon in the family. He went to Stanford and got his law degree, business degree, and went to Hogan uh, and Hartson. And, you know, in the back of your mind, everybody talks about how terrific he was and I guess blazed a trail in my head about, you know, something that was a, an admirable course for one to follow. Well, it's good to have role models, so that's... <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. So tell me about your law school experience. You were here in D.C., not far from where I'm sitting, a couple blocks away, just down the street. I was. How did you get here, and, and what was that like? Well, I, I guess I sort of had a, a... From the University of Illinois, I had a couple interesting uh, paths along my career. You know, I came to the realization that after growing up in the in the cornfields of Illinois and then going to undergraduate, even at a larger institution, but still out in the middle of the cornfields, if you've ever had the pleasure of being in Champaign-Urbana, that I probably needed for my own benefit to have a, a different life uh, experience. So I, I targeted um, urban environments, urban campuses, and particularly in different regions, the East Coast were being most prominent. And D.C. seemed like a terrific place to go just because I was, I've always been sort of interested in history and politics and all those sorts of things. And so obviously that lends itself to, to DC. And when I, when I got there, in fact, it was hammered home to me before I even started school, Judge Bork was going through his confirmation hearings during the first weeks of our law school career there. And it was grand theater, you know, really the first sort of contested, um, highly contested uh, nomination in, in the more modern era. And it was fascinating, uh, really an introduction to the district and to life in DC. And Judge Bork was, um, I, I can't say that I aligned closely with his uh, philosophies or um, some instances in his career, but he was a mental giant um, and just so impressive uh, uh, during the questioning by the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was, it was really quite an introduction. It's funny, you're bringing back memories for me. Now, 
I will date myself, but my first um, semester of law school were the Clarence Thomas hearings. So I think, mm. <laughs> right, for, for people oh, in that environment. Those, are even, those might have even been more toxic. <laughs> they just sucked you in, you know. You thought you should yeah. be studying, but maybe you yeah. were studying by watching TV. <laughs> sort of yeah. the clock. Well, yep. I, I distinctly remember Judge Bork sitting alone at a table. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, which always has all the very, you know, very prominent members of the Senate are part of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, nine of them, I believe it was, uh, all lined up and had clerks running back and forth with law books and pointing to different things and forming their questions. And Judge Bork just sat there with nothing in front of him and answered every question in a highly detailed, intelligent manner. He just knew everything he'd ever written. He knew all the precedents. He you know, was clearly a mental giant. He was just a very impressive figure. So what were your takeaways from your experience here at GW? You know, I think at that time it was still, for me, it was, I think some people go to law school and are um, really ready to embark on that career, you know, trying to position themselves for their legal profession, particularly students that come go to law school and are, are older. You know, they really have more of a career angle. Uh, for me personally, I think I was still trying to figure out what life was about in this bigger context. And some of that has to do with going to uh, law school being um, pretty naive. I, I can't think there's any other way of saying it. When you grow up with my background, you, you're a little... You're just a little naive to the world and don't have quite the level of sophistication. So for me, I was just excited about uh, being there, what uh, all the new people that I was meeting from uh, a whole host of places. GW has a very diverse student body in in a geographic sense. I, I can't speak at the time to what the the ethnic or gender diversity was, although I do remember the classes being from a gender standpoint, probably about 50-50 would have been my guess, but um, certainly from a geographic standpoint. So I found it to be a fascinating period just in terms of absorbing all these new things that were coming at me and just opening my eyes to a world that I just had no idea even existed and feeling in many ways struggling to sort of get a grip on it and what it all meant. It was a great period, but it was also one that, you know, sometimes people are happy not knowing what they don't know. And I started learning things uh, and learning about people, and it was uh, eye-opening. So walk us through your career history and how you ultimately get to Winston and Strawn. Sure. So I went to First, I started my practice in New Orleans, of all places. Um, I had a good friend in law school who was uh, getting set to practice down there, and he suggested that I interview with his firm. And honestly, this and it just goes back to my some of my own personal naivete. I said, "Sure, that sounds like a great idea." I had a terrific interview with a good firm down there, and uh, loved it and accepted. And without giving it too much thought as to you know, what would be the right place to go and what all that would have meaning, you know, down the road and just really sort of the future implications. Um, and that was okay. I had a, I had a terrific experience there. Um, I was there about three years and then I quickly decided that if I were to stay down there, I would end up living the rest of my life down there. Um, and I just wasn't certain that I wanted to spend the rest of my life in New Orleans. Not that 
Uh, New Orleans wasn't a wonderful place. It is, but my family is up here, and it was probably about time for me to start thinking on a longer trajectory. So I moved back up here. I ended up, I was in the in labor and employment field. My last stop was at McDermott, Will, and Emory here in Chicago. And, um, you know, at some point, when you're, particularly when you're an associate in a large law firm, you start thinking about, you know, where, where's all this going to lead me? What do I, what do I really want to do in life? And I had, I had sort of two driving forces, I think, coming at me at that point. One was that, you know, you spend a lot of time in the office, you're doing a lot of work. And I was deathly fearful that, um, my epitaph was going to be, you know, he defended major corporations in discrimination lawsuits, which wasn't, you know, which is fine. And, and, and what I quickly learned on being an employment lawyer was that there are many gray hats and not too many um, white or black hats. So it certainly wasn't any, um, any criticism of corporate America, but I, I think I've, I've, I aligned more with the, uh, the individuals and the, and the corporate parties. And so I was kind of on the, a little bit on the wrong side of things. Um, and, you know, if you want to spend your time and a lot of time all day, every day being a lawyer, I felt like I should be doing it in a way that had the most benefit for the society around me. And it's difficult to do that uh, as a full-time commercial lawyer. You know, it was really sort of my, my public interest calling came at that point. Um, and a lot of that was driven, frankly, by one of my pro bono clients. I was representing a large nonprofit based on Chicago's South side. And it's a, it was a very tough neighborhood. And the woman who was the executive director was very tough. Um, I mean, she ran a very tight ship. It was a little bit of an oasis in a very difficult neighborhood and they were providing all sorts of general social services to the community. And, and I admired her greatly. I thought, you know, every day this person goes into the office works very hard, and she did work very hard uh, to improve the community around her and to give back to the people there. And what a worthwhile endeavor. I mean, what a better way to spend your your life's toils than, than that. So between this notion that I wasn't quite comfortable with my own posture in, uh, in, the, in the law firm dynamic and uh, my admiration for what she was doing, it sort of propelled me into the next phase, which was a, a public interest phase. I think that's an interesting way to have your awakening. <laughs> you know, some people, I mean, people have it at all different phases and stages of their lives. Some people, it's why they go to law school. Some people, it's an experience. I think it's, an, it's interesting that it comes out of a pro bono representation, right? And seeing amazing paths. I think that's really interesting. Um, okay, so what happens next? You, you have your public interest awakening and your passion for access to justice is sparked. What happens? Well, you know, and it's interesting you see uh, my passion for access to justice was sparked. So I would say it was my uh, passion for justice in a bigger sense. Yeah. What I really wanted to do was to run a nonprofit. I wanted to do what, what she was doing, yeah. uh, the executive director was doing. So I explored what that would mean. And I, I, I quickly decided it would be difficult as a, as a lawyer to establish yourself in a, in a senior position quickly in a, in a larger nonprofit. It just, I mean, there are people that go to school and, you know, establish a whole career to get to that point. You can't just walk into it. And so I, I didn't feel like that was 
going to be easily accomplished in a, in a short amount of time. The other part was I liked being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't really have any, you know, it wasn't an objection to the law or an objection to the lawyer. I, I liked being a lawyer. So I was, I was trying to figure out how to merge those two uh, concepts. And um, I was fortunate enough to have a, a random encounter, if you will, with Bonnie Allen uh, Bonnie is somebody you may know, Rena. Um, Bonnie, uh, at the time, was working at the ABA at the uh, Center for Pro Bono, and she was the director of the Center for Pro Bono. Bonnie has since gone on to have a number of chapters in her own very distinguished public interest career. She's now the executive director of the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law um, after spending time at NLADA and the Mississippi Justice Center and other organizations. Uh, but Bonnie and I had a meeting um, with, of all things, it was a group of Methodist lawyers. Bonnie went to a seminary here at Northwestern, um, and uh, I was a member of the downtown Methodist Church, and she gave a, uh, I don't know, a, a discussion. I went to it, and afterwards we started talking, and struck up a, a friendship and a relationship that's can, you know, persisted until now. And I told her just kind of, you know, some of the things I was thinking about doing. And, um, about six months later, she called me and said, Hey, you know what? I have a position open. Would you be interested in joining the ABA center for pro bono? And I thought, wow, that just seems like a great hybrid position for what I was trying to do and bringing the sort of two threads together and uh, I accepted and that's what started my my public interest career. Great. So around, you know, when did you join the ABA and how long were you there? Just so we get kind of a... Yeah, a yeah. I joined, so I, I joined the ABA in 1997. Uh, then I be, Bonnie uh, left after I was there about a year and I became the director of the Center for Pro Bono and I left there in 2002 when um, I met with senior leadership here at Winston and Strawn they had um, a position open here. A young woman who was sort of the first pro bono person here was um, leaving to go to Denver. The position was opening up. They wanted to do something a little bit different with it. They wanted to sort of establish a, a sort of a more of a firm wide position. I met with an individual named Kimball Anderson, who was then the chair of the pro bono committee. Kimball's a, a superstar pro bono person, somebody who's in the pantheon. There are there are few and far between uh, that that can match Kimball's commitment to pro bono. But uh, he he and I met along with the managing partner Winston, and and they hired me for the job. And you've been there since two thousand two. Fifteen years. Happy anniversary! Yeah. Thank you. That's Thank a you. Nice, that's a nice ride. I will say, I mean, one of the takeaways from this story, because um, this is something we get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do too. You know, how do you get? jobs? How do you get positions? How do you make what you want happen? And there's a certain element of serendipity. And so you go, you talk to people, you meet with people, they know you, you're on their radar. And X months later, something happens. So be open to that. You know, that's, it's a, a nice Well, I would away. think the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the meeting with Bonnie and the, um, the jump to the ABA, you know, certainly there's some serendipity there, but that's, you know, kids today would call that networking. Yeah. And that's, Yep. You know, it's what it was. Yep. And even with the, I was introduced to Kimball through um, Bob Glaves here at the Chicago Bar Foundation. So um, also a little bit of networking, but 
a lot of serendipity. And quite frankly, you know, at that time, Rena, back in 2002, um, and even in 1997 when I joined the ABA, the professionalism of the pro bono community uh, in large law firms was was just starting to to grow, and it was a much I don't know. People didn't even know what it was. It was a, a relatively unknown piece of of large law firm output. So it was much simpler than if if I were to resign tomorrow and Winston and Strawn were to post my positions, I would expect they'd probably get 500 applications. Yeah, easy. <laughs> and with many hundreds of those people being insanely qualified. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, to the point of embarrassment that sometimes I, 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 I question why, uh, why the firm doesn't just pitch me overboard and hire one of those people. Uh, okay. Well, let's put a pin in this idea of the professionalization of uh, law firm pro bono. Yes. I want to come back to that because that's a, sure. a big topic that I know you want to talk about. So you're, you, let's talk about your role at the firm. How do you spend yeah. your time? Well, increasingly, it's more management related than, than it was at first. So when I first was hired, it was just me. Uh, and for the next 10 years, it was just me. The pro bono department was Greg. Um, and it's difficult to pull that off in terms of uh, establishing a real foundation um, and generating a lot of opportunities, um, I think, without having a little bit more staff support in that. There are firms that have done it, no question. Um, Jenner is a terrific example. Um, they don't have a pro bono counsel right now, and they are have been one of the top three, four, five firms, you know, forever. Um, and a lot of that's driven through their their partnership. But in a model where you're trying to have, you know, a, a department or a collection of individuals that you know is responsible largely for kind of driving opportunities, it, it's hard to do when you have a firm with 800 lawyers and. At the time, it was probably five domestic locations and three international locations. Now we have 16 offices around the globe. Uh, very difficult to, to do that with just one person. And so at that time, a lot of my efforts were uh, largely driven around trying to identify opportunities and trying to uh, create an, a, an appropriate pipeline for each of our offices and then trying to introduce that pipeline to our lawyers. And so a lot of that was me establishing relationships with the nonprofits and then, of course, also our lawyers and then trying to, to, to drive hours, trying to generate activity. Um, and that was a big part of it. Now we have a team of three uh, pro bono counsel people. I'm, my title is now senior pro bono counsel, and we have a pro bono counsel here in Chicago, Maria Kutnick, uh, who's been with us five years. And... We recently hired a second pro bono counsel in New York, Tara Moss, who joined us, I think, in June or late May. So now we have you know, a team of people that are, that are really driving opportunities. That's a big part of what we do as a collective whole is try to identify and drive opportunities to our lawyers at the same time reaching out to our lawyers and, and informing them about what's out there, trying to understand their interests and and you know, do the classic matchmaking function that happens um, as the uh, as the intermediary in a firm. So that's a lot of our time. But but along with that, then that generates a tremendous amount of activity in terms of meeting with individuals, preparing reports, trying to identify um, 
who we've been successful reaching, who we have not been successful, developing strategy around that and trying to implement it. So last year we had a terrific year. We had 92% of our U.S. lawyers reach the the AMLA 20-hour metric mark, which was a, a high watermark for us. And largely that was driven because we were able to develop the pipeline, connect the lawyers, and, you know, rinse and repeat and do it again and, and, and get more people involved. So we've had some success, I think, in developing this foundation, this pipeline foundation in a way that we like to develop matters and, and move them to our lawyers. So I guess the, the short answer to that long windup is the core focus of our work is driving pro bono opportunities. Is there anything you wish you could be doing more of, you know, sort of that thing on your to-do list that you just sort of never get to do because there's never enough time? Well, I, I do in the sense that I know that um, I, I, I speak regularly with others, of course, and, and other law firms that have comparable positions. And I think that others probably do a little more true public interest lawyering themselves, um, handling cases and, and sort of getting involved as the as the sort of the senior lawyer and so what's happened is that over time my role has expanded more into a a a management type of position which is great and i and i enjoy it tremendously but at the same time um i'm not the one you know taking the depositions and developing trial strategy we're asking our lawyers to do that and i i think from the firm's perspective that's absolutely the right way to 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 handle our role but I know, you know, firms do it differently, and other firms have had tremendous success in, in different variations on that, and I, I do miss that part of it. That's an interesting observation, and I think it's a tension that a lot of people feel with, right, the, how to allocate their time between their own lawyering, you know, handling their own cases and yes. being, you know, sort of a pro bono practitioner versus, as you say, being managing and running the program. And if there were unlimited time, <laughs> it wouldn't be such a hard decision, but it's that's a right. no, that's right. allocation of scarce resources. I actually have a current events question I wanted to ask you about the firm in in June or earlier this summer, Julie Goodman became what's called the first chief corporate social responsibility officer, CSR officer, yes. at the firm. And it's on my mind because I got a call from a reporter about it last week who did an article mm-hmm. about it. And we can um, put out links to the article in our social and in our show page. So if people aren't familiar with it or want to see it, um, we'll make it easy for you to find. But I'm curious what your take on this development is and, you know, what, if any, impact on pro bono you think it will have. Well, Julie uh, has been with the firm for many, many years. Even she predates me, you know, by, by, I don't know, a number of years. Um, And she's terrific. She was our chief human relations officer. So Julie has had a number of different roles on the, in sort of in the HR sphere uh, and has the full confidence of management and has a tremendous skill set. So Julie's one of those people that could do a lot of different things. Um, And this one was one that sort of came along as we hired a new chief talent officer in our DC office, a terrific person also by the name of Sue Monch. And Sue uh, has this bigger worldview about what firms should be doing than maybe we were doing before as, as, as a firm. She's, that's, her, that's her objective, and that's, that's why we hired Sue. And so she and Julie came to this idea of 
creating this CSR position. And a lot of it, frankly, is um, going the next step in terms of what we were doing as a firm already, but taking it understanding what we were doing with respect to our charitable giving, understanding what we were doing with our uh, overall firm volunteerism, and that means not just lawyers doing pro bono, but our staff, people, and their uh, various community activities, um, and then pro bono as well, um, and what we were doing on the pro bono side. So Julie does not report to me, and I don't report to Julie in a, in a hierarchical sense, um, but we, um, you know, we are sort of standing side by side and, and uh, collaborating in terms of activities. So, for example, there's a, I won't name a name, but there's a terrific nonprofit here in Chicago that we have somebody on the board of directors. Um, the firm gives them a good amount of money in terms of supporting their mission. Um, and we've hosted events here at the firm. They are also a pro bono client of the firm. Um, which came about through the, uh, the leadership of this person on the board, but also through a couple of other attorneys who uh, have lateral here that had their own independent relationship. And we recently then um, started identifying some other opportunities for staff to work with them. And they've become sort of this higher elevated client, if you will, much like one of our commercial clients who are trying to not just do one set of uh, legal matters for, say, only litigation, but we'd also like to do their corporate work and their employee benefits work and their tax work. So now we have these bigger nonprofits that we're developing a much richer relationship to and are um, trying to help them improve their mission, but also to help the people at the firm sort of, um, you know, give back to the community um, gain all that there is to be gained from community giving and community work, which is, as we all know, a, a significant benefit to the giver. So that's a, that's sort of the you know a bigger picture piece. Um, I'm sure Julie has some other thoughts about how that all plays out, but that's certainly how I see it in uh, in an overlap with pro bono. Oh, that's a great hot take for something in the news, and I think it segues sort of back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is the increased professionalization of pro bono sort of writ large. So could you reflect on some of the changes that you've seen, uh, you know, over the past 15 years in the sort of law firm pro bono leadership sphere? Certainly. Um, you know, I, it's, it's remarkable, actually. And I just, you, you all may have done this at PBI, and I just can't quite digest all that's out there. But uh, the, the number of firms that have a person who's sort of the designated lead has increased tremendously in my time. I, I mean, there's just every time I turn around, some firm is is hiring uh, a lead person. But maybe more importantly, you're seeing firms hire on sort of a full complement of people. So, um, and we're certainly uh, a good example of that. I, we now have. Um, uh, the two other individuals I mentioned that are attorneys, full-time attorneys, working with me to manage the, the program, pro bono counsel here at, at Winston. And we have a, uh, an admin who's helping support that. So our capabilities in terms of what we can do are, uh, you know, threefold, fourfold over what we're doing. And so, you know, when we go from uh, whatever, five, six years ago of having 50% of our lawyers 
reach 20 hours to having 92% of our lawyers reach 20 hours. That's not that's not an accident. We have the capabilities to make that happen. Um, and so I think firms are, what you're seeing then is, is greater participation in terms of uh, the, the, the volume of lawyers getting involved. But you're also seeing firms become more sophisticated in how they're handling matters, um, which frankly don't always get reflected in numbers and in some ways may actually have a downward effect on some of the productivity numbers because uh, one of the things that we are all trying to do are find quality opportunities that we think are are well managed and then getting involved in the oversight of those so that we're making sure that our lawyers are well trained, um, that they are uh, doing what they need to do in terms of moving their cases forward, checking in on them. So this idea of um, oversight of, of um, I don't know, I even call it risk management, if you will. It's sort of a more dire term, but managing the, the product as well as just developing the pipeline is tremendously important. So firms are not only, you know, doing more, but they're doing more quality work for uh, hopefully their, their legal aid partners. Um, and then well, the things that they're doing, the things that they're identifying. So it's, it's simple enough to take a list that the local pro bono agency, the local legal aid agency sends you and just distribute it and say, hey, who wants to do this? Um, and some people may do that. Um, but when you start targeting um, areas of, of importance to the firm, maybe, or, or areas that have a more socially significant area, or at least as the firm determines that, um, is important. I think so firms are getting a, a, a better product and a, a higher uh, volume of work from their attorneys as a result. On the business side, law firms are fierce competitors in the marketplace, but there's a genuine yeah. sense that law firm pro bono community is incredibly collaborative. Is, is that your experience and why do you think that is? It is absolutely my experience, and it is remarkable, truly remarkable. There, there has not been a time when I have been stuck with a question or something, an issue, a problem, uh, and I have called on any number of my colleagues or, or just sent an email out and said, hey, has anybody done this and received, without exception, a response, but usually multiple responses. Um, and some of it goes down to the, the things that, that my firm competes with their firms in terms of, hey, I'm working with this program. Have you had some level of success? You know, what programs did you like? And I, I get back answers from them, which are things that at some level could be viewed as competitive um, of information. But when, when the product that we're competing over is who gets to serve more people that can't afford counsel, I think we all understand that that we're in this for the greater good and not just for the law firm's good. So that that's what really underlies the collaborative nature is that we all understand that the mission here is not just where Winston and Strawn falls at in national rankings or, or how many hours we generate. It's, it's what kind of an impact we have on our community and how we can help others expand their impact on the same community or on different communities. So uh, underlying it all is this very strong sense of a, of a mission-driven job, of a mission-driven charge. And um, I can certainly speak for our firm and, and many others, but that's the way my firm wants it. They, want, they understand that, that we're trying to give back to our communities 
that's part of my charge. And so within that is, is a uh, sort of a collaborative um, and understanding that there's going to be a collaborative relationship with other firms. What motivates and inspires you? Well, one of the things that I find tremendously satisfying about the role that, that I have and the role that others in this position have, and that doesn't necessarily mean somebody who's, who's you know, in a, in a leadership position, but in a, in a sort of a pro bono department role, is we really have two clients. We have the clients that are the ultimate recipient of legal services and the stories that we see each and every day, the communications that our, that our clients send us. I mean, you, you have to be completely void of any feelings whatsoever to not be moved by some of the incredible stories that, that our, our clients have that we're helping them through and, and the terrific need that they have. And then the other part is then we get to see our lawyers come back and they are moved. They are excited. They are motivated to do more work for the same collective set of individuals. So you get this, you get this magnifier. It's, it's satisfaction squared, if you will, because we get it from both the client and our law firm attorney client, if you will. And it's, uh, it's tremendously satisfying uh, to get that double boost on, on so many of our matters. So as a veteran, 15 years now in your position, what tips do you give to newcomers to law firm pro bono uh, leadership positions? What sort of tips and tricks of the trade have you developed over this time um, that might be helpful for a newbie to know? Well, it's funny you ask because uh, so we have, Tara has recently yep, joined us, exactly. and um, she's getting a full um, uh, slate of, of Greg's really helpful tips. Um, um, I'm sure far more than she uh, totally desires. <laughs> <laughs> but um, over time, we've uh, had success in, 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 I think, how we do different things, particularly in, in the recruiting function um, and in the identifying function. So um, to me, the, the trick in communicating with our lawyers, for example, is you, you have to make it as easy on them as possible. And you have to understand, in my view, that their, their willingness to even look at your opportunities is very minimal, very discreet. Even the most um, uh, energetic pro bono lawyers, they're, they're super busy. And so you have what I consider to be a seven-second window of attention for any communication with them. And so... If you live by the seven-second rule, particularly with emails um, and other sort of written communication, got to have a you know a terrific subject line. You've got to quickly get into it uh, and tell them not only what the matter's about but what they're going to do. So we spend we spend a tremendous amount of our time really in what uh, what a retail operation would call point of sale contact and and trying to perfect that and make it so that our lawyers understand what's available to them and, and, and what they can do very quickly. Is that somewhat mundane? Yes, it is. Is it mission critical? Absolutely. If what you're trying to do is to get very busy lawyers to take time out of their, their commercial world and do something um, that's, that's not part of that, you've, you've got to find a way to, to get their attention and to hold it. So we spend a tremendous amount of time on that. And um, 
that's the part I spend a lot of time with talking to other people about is how they're doing that and ways to figure out how to reach their lawyers. Thank you. Great tips. Thank you so much to Greg for making the time to be with us. And be sure to tune in next week for part two of our conversation. We'll be talking about why pro bono is more than winning, how to create a firm-wide culture of pro bono, the innocence record, and more. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes or what's now known as Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. You could just leave a rating or add some comments, whatever you'd like. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Hey listeners, we've gotten some great mail from you and we want more. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.